Welcome back, everyone, to our series in 1 Corinthians. This week, we find ourselves in chapter 14, and I've entitled this teaching, Living a Life of Clarity. And for the sake of clarity, I want to cover just a couple things before we get started. Uh, One is, I get many emails from people asking about the notes that you see show up on the screen occasionally. And uh, all of these are available on our website. You can print them out, even with my chicken scratches and and notes and sketches. And uh, you can go to our website, www.bethdecoon.com. Go to this teaching, and you can print them all out right there. In fact, you may just want to pause the video right now and go there, print out the notes, and you can follow along through the teaching. Uh, The second thing is I often get questions about what translation I use. I use different ones, and when I'm teaching from the uh, Torah or from the Tanakh, I work directly from the Hebrew and will often use um, the art scroll translation, but making the tweaks that need to be made. But as I go through Corinthians, I'm using what is called the Scripture Journal, which is published by Crossway, and they do one of these for each book of the New Testament Scriptures. What I like about this is that you have the text on the left-hand page, and on the facing page, you have a room for notes. There are wide margins. It's very thick, good paper, a great binding. It's convenient, and it allows me to make all kinds of notes and a few corrections even. This is only available in the English Standard Version, but as with any English translation, a translation is a commentary. I would never mess with the original Hebrew or the Greek. That's sacrosanct. You don't touch it. But when it comes to translations, they're up for grabs. And every translation has some biases, has some shortcomings, and this is why we're always producing new translations. So if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, you're following along, and when I read, mine sounds a little different from yours, that's because I've made a few tweaks, corrections, alterations. And uh, I won't spend more time on that right now, but uh, you'll, you'll pick up those as you follow through. So, let's get on to chapter 14. I know for me that this is the one chapter of 1 Corinthians I have looked forward to the least, because it's been a chapter that's been a source of confusion and, even worse, division among the body of Messiah. And uh, I hope to bring some healing and maybe some understanding, but this is still a very, very difficult chapter. I think Paul might have felt the same way as he approached this. Because back in chapter 12, he goes through the spiritual gifts, from prophecy at the top down to tongues at the bottom. And then before he gets into this chapter about the gift of tongues and its many misuses and dangers, as well as its benefits, he inserts that chapter, chapter 13, about love, because he wants us to approach this chapter with a heart of love, so we do not allow this controversial issue to divide us and confuse us. And so I encourage you as well. And if you have some strong opinions about the gift of tongues, I just hope you'll humble yourself and allow yourself to approach this with love for your brother who may not see things the same way. And, um, and also, as Paul encourages us, to seek the most important gifts, especially the gift of prophecy, 
which we'll be talking about as well. So, let's get into it. I outline this chapter this way. You can basically divide the chapter into two halves. Uh, the first half is verses 1 through 25, and um, you can divide that section into four smaller ones, prophecy, how it's superior to tongues, the limitations of tongues, the effectiveness of language, and I just call this fourth part, don't be stupid, which seems to be a running theme through all of Paul's writings. And the second half of the chapter is about gatherings, and we assemble together as the redeemed community. And this is in three parts. First one's about orderly communication, so there's always order in the service. Second is a caution to wives. And then third, what I call the bottom line. Now, throughout the chapter, Paul is giving some some uh, sticking points, some foundational points, some, some things he wants the Corinthians to keep in mind at all times as they go through this chapter. And we must all remember that as we come to this chapter, the Corinthians were spiritual infants. The Corinthians were spiritual infants. Back in chapter 3, it begins, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Messiah, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. So the things Paul is teaching here, he's teaching to an extremely spiritually immature community of believers. And um, I guess you could just say the church at Corinth was a hot mess. And Paul just dove in, and um, he was pretty, pretty stern in many places, and then very gentle in others. He had a heart for this assembly, this community, he wanted them to grow up to spiritual maturity. And when we get to 2 Corinthians, we will have seen this assembly at Corinth grow by leaps and bounds. But during this chapter, chapter 14, He's encouraging and then reminding them. And he, these are some of these important points that he brings out. Like, use this as your, your, uh, your milestones in this chapter. These are the important things that you must not forget as we wade into this controversial topic. Verse 1, he says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So to pursue love and we're to desire the ability to prophesy. Verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babies, but in your thinking be mature. There's a big difference between a mature believer and an immature believer. An immature believer is motivated and controlled by emotion. Emotion. To them, emotion is the deepest part of their soul. And they haven't even tapped into the spiritual yet and into the depths of wisdom. And uh, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to think as mature believers and not as babies operating out of their feelings. Verse 26, let all things be done for edification. In other words, let everything you do be for the sake of building up your brother, not for promoting yourself, not for drawing attention to yourself. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
If there's confusion in your assembly, that's not God at work. That's not his handiwork at all. That is ego and human pride and emotion at work. Verse 40, well, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. This is so important. If anything is going to be accomplished, there must be order. If you recall, when God gave instructions for the tabernacle, he gave very specific and ordered instructions for every single detail, every material that was used, and every measurement. And when it was done according to the order that he prescribed, then he indwelt it. And God, not being a God of confusion, a God of order, he dwells where there's a place of order. Now, we don't want to be... Uh, stiff and rigid and legalistic. That's not healthy either. But there cannot be chaos and there cannot be just a free-for-all. It can't be uh, like a classroom of rowdy children and the teacher steps out of the room. There has to be order for God to accomplish what he wants to do. Now, let me just address the word tongues. Throughout English translations, the word Tongue or tongues is used. I'm not quite sure why. Um, in Greek, the word for tongue is glossa, and that's what you see here at the top in red. In Hebrew, it's lashon. This is where we get the word lashon hara, evil speech. And in Latin, which is the language of the Roman Empire, it was lingua, and that's where we get our word language. And all three of these words mean not only a tongue, but they also were the word in their respective languages for language. We use the term people of, uh, from every tribe, every nation, and tongue. Well, by tongue, we mean language. And so, instead of using the word tongues as we go through this chapter, you'll hear me use the word languages, which is how the people in Corinth would have understood it. So we're talking about languages, the use of various languages. Of course, the question is, is the language uh, under consideration a human language, uh, one that was spoken by various peoples, or was it a heavenly language? Or could Paul be referring to both kinds of language? But everything about this chapter must also be understood in the context of Babel. If you recall, back in Genesis chapter 11, uh, in chapter 10, we get uh, Noah and his three sons and then the generations that descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you count the number of nations and people groups, there were 70. 70 people groups descended from Noah and his sons. And then chapter 11, it talks about how all these people, these 70 nations, all spoke the same lip, the same language. And... Uh, and they decided to get together and let's build a tower. Let's build a city so that we will not be separated. God didn't like this, so he sent the confusion of the languages and divided them up into 70 languages and the people dispersed over the face of the earth. I think there's a, a lesson here. It's been my observation that when I'm in a community, a religious community, a Christian community, 
And there's a lot of confusion. It's often because they're trying to build a tower and build a name for themselves. When a group comes together with a sole purpose of serving God and serving one another, I find order and I find unity. But when people start pulling away because they want to make a name for themselves, they want to draw attention to themselves, they want to promote their own abilities and gifts, when they want to build a city and a tower with their name on it, God will allow confusion to take control and division is the result. So just something to keep in mind. In red here, you see the Hebrew word for Babel. And uh, that's where we get our word for babbling. In Hebrew, it's pronounced bavel. But an interesting phenomenon takes place here, and that is this. If you spell the word backwards in Hebrew, it's lamed, bait, bait, which many of you will, rep- will recognize as the word for heart, lavav. This isn't an accident. I believe that wherever you find confusion, you find backward hearts. When a heart is properly aligned to God and his purposes, God is there and he uh, indwells what is going on and he blesses it and he uses it. When people's hearts are backwards, there's babble, babble, confusion. So which heart do you have? And which heart does your community have? At Babel, people, instead of speaking the same thing, all began to speak different things in a way they could not understand. And maybe Paul had this in mind way back in chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, that you all agree Except the Greek word there is not agree. That's why I've crossed it out. What it says in the Greek is he exhorts them that they all speak the same thing. Speak the same thing. Now that is how you would say to agree in Greek. You speak the same thing. And it's almost as if Paul is saying we need to reverse the work of Babel. And we, from all these Gentile nations who are coming back together under the name of Messiah, we need to start speaking the same thing. Not that we all speak the same language necessarily, but we speak the same thoughts from our hearts. And we no longer are divided from one another. So he exhorts them in the name of Yeshua to speak the same thing, and there be no divisions, because when people are speaking different things, as at Babel, there's division. But you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I want us to go through a little history of speaking in tongues, speaking in languages. And uh, after the confusion at Babel, and everyone's separated, an interesting thing happens. Egypt it rose as the, the great world power. And as the great world power, it had slaves from all over the world, as well as merchants and, uh, and traders who came from all over the world, the known world, uh, to trade with Egypt. And there were slaves as well, from every tongue and nation. And when God sent Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, we're told that there was a great mixed multitude 
an Erev Rav, a mixed multitude, a great mixed multitude. And, um, and so they came out with the Jewish people. They came to Sinai. And at Sinai, God descends on top of the mountain in, in cloud and darkness and, and lightning and fire, and he speaks. What, a, what an incredible day that would have been. And in the Talmud, and I remember the Talmud is not inspired scripture, but there's an interesting thing recorded there. There's a lot of history that's recorded in the Talmud, and this is what it says. Now, there are two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud, and there's the Jerusalem Talmud. <clears throat> when you see a reference to the Talmud, there'll be a, a letter B or a letter J. If there's a letter B at the front, that means it's the Babylonian Talmud, which is the largest and, the, and it's the most studied. And then there are 60-some tractates, if my memory serves, and each one has a title. This is from Tractate Shabbat, and it's page 88, and the B at the end means it's on the back side of the page. 88A is the front side, 88B is the back side. And uh, traditionally, a Jewish person would study both sides of one page of the Talmud every, Talmud every day. If you study the front and back side of a page of Talmud every day, it'll take you seven years to get through the entire Talmud. So that gives you an idea. Do the math. You can figure out how many pages that would be. But in, anyways, in Tractate Shabbat, page 88b, this is what it says. Each and every utterance that emerged from the mouth of the Almighty divided into 70 languages, a great host. And similarly, the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught with regard to the verse, now this is Jeremiah 23, 29 that he's quoting, Behold, is my word not like fire, declares Adonai, and like a hammer that shatters a rock? It's a great verse. God says, my words aren't just, just mist and, and vapor that dissolve into the air. My word is like a hammer that shatters rock. My voice has weight. And so while the school of Rabbi Yishmael was teaching on this verse, one of the insights they had was this. Just as this hammer breaks a stone into several fragments, so too each and every utterance that emerged from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be He, divided into 70 languages. So that's referring to when God spoke from Mount Sinai. The day that God spoke from Mount Sinai was Shavuot. It was 50 days after Passover. The Israelites left Egypt on Passover. 50 days later... God speaks from Mount Sinai. So this was Shavuot, or as we know it, uh, and as it's often referred to in Christianity, Pentecost. Penti meaning 50. So, a brief history of tongues. The first occurrence is Mount Sinai, when God spoke to the great mixed multitude, and when he spoke, they all heard him speak in their own language. Then you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, and once again, it's the day of Shavuot. It's the day of Pentecost. And it says in verse 1, When the day of Shavuot arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own dialect. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native dialect? So here we see, once again, on that day of the year, on Shavuot, but over a thousand years later, God speaking, but this time, instead of from a mountain that's on fire, he speaks from his, his apostles who have flames of fire on their heads. And as they speak, all of these men, these Jews from the nations who had come together for this pilgrimage feast in Jerusalem, they could hear them speak in their own dialect. So here we see God once again speaking, but this time it's to Jews in Israel. And uh, some of these were probably converts as well. But they had come to Jerusalem for this very special holy day. Now, what's unique about both of these is that unlike the gift that is described in 1 Corinthians 14, here's where men spoke a language they didn't understand, but everyone else did in their own language. But in chapter 14, we see someone speaking a language they do not understand, and no one does else does either unless there's an interpreter. So we'll get to that in a moment. Now, later in Acts chapter 8, we discover this. Peter goes to Samaria. Now, Samaria is in the land of Israel, but the Samaritans, as you probably know, were half Jewish, half Gentile. This is why they were kind of outcast from uh, the people of Israel, and they were looked down upon. They were worse than dogs. They were not even considered human beings by most of the Israelites. So whenever you read about a Samaritan, and like Yeshua uh, meeting the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, or him telling the parable about the good Samaritan, just understand the Israelites, their hackles went up when they heard uh, anything good about a Samaritan. But they were half Jews and they were half Gentile. And Peter goes there, and it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they had heard the gospel, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been immersed in the name of the Master Yeshua. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's no mention of tongues here, but we can safely assume that there was uh, this ecstatic speech, as we will see in the next two examples. So here we see the Holy Spirit and some kind of a, a phenomenal uh, experience and uh, outpouring upon the Samaritans. Then we go on a couple more chapters, Acts 10, that well-known chapter where, where Peter is in um, uh, the town of, uh, why did my mind just go blank? He's in the town where Jonah fled from to go to Tarsus. Help me out, David. What town was that? Oh, he fell asleep at the controls. No, that's where he's supposed to go. Joppa, thank you. All right. Thank you, David. And uh, Joppa. He was in Joppa, just down the coast. And, 
and um, God appears to Cornelius as an, in the form of an angel. The angel tells him to send to Peter. So Peter in Joppa, he's on the roof, he's hungry, and he gets the vision of the sheet with all the, the different animals in it. Anyways, to shorten the story, in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, says, well, he goes on up the coast, just up the coast a bit north to Caesarea. And while Peter was still saying these things, he's speaking to Gentiles, he's giving them a sermon. It says, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, on Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. Is poured out on him and these other Gentiles in his home. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and languages and extolling God. Now, at this time, we see the Holy Spirit with the accompanying uh, manifestation of tongues falling upon Gentiles. But these are Gentiles living in Israel. Now, let's go on to Acts chapter 19. And this is Paul coming to Corinth, to whom Paul is writing the, the letter, the epistle of Corinthians. He comes to Corinth. This is the first time he comes. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, on these Corinthians, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now we see this phenomena occurring to Gentiles outside, outside Israel. Because after all, Corinth is in Asia Minor. So see what's happened here. Starting in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit poured out on the Jews in this phenomena of languages. Then on Samaritans who are half Jewish. Then on Gentiles in Israel. And then finally on Gentiles outside of Israel. And then that's the last time we see the phenomena recorded in the apostolic scriptures. But I want to add a sixth one to this list. And this comes from um, some personal knowledge I have. And I want us to go to Mongolia in 1990. In 1990, Mongolia, for the first time in, I think it was five, 600 years, opened its borders to Christian missionaries. 1990. The gospel had not been brought to Mongolia since so many centuries before. No one in Mongolia knew the gospel. But they just suddenly opened the doors, invited Christian missionaries in, and um, a bunch went. And there was one particular Baptist pastor who went to take the gospel. He went into the, the steps there of the Gobi Desert and began to preach the gospel to these uh, Mongolians who had uh, had no idea, had never heard about a gospel, didn't know anything about Yeshua or the Bible. And this Baptist, who did not believe that speaking in tongues occurs anymore, while he's preaching to them, and while they're receiving the gospel, the Mongolians respond because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and they began to speak in tongues. Now, the following year, in 1991, my brother Brian went to Mongolia with other friends of ours, 
and with the same Baptist pastor. And on the plane over, he's sitting by this Baptist pastor who's sharing everything that happened a year before in 1990. And when Brian went over, he didn't know what to expect. But what they had found is that over the intervening year, these Mongolians who had just heard the gospel a year previous were, had been studying the word. Some teachers had stayed behind and were opening the scriptures to them. And guess what? There's no more speaking in tongues. It just happened that one time. And um, this helps me to understand something that Paul says near the end of chapter 13 of Corinthians, where he says that where there are tongues, they will pass away. One of the things we cannot fail to miss as we go through this chapter is whatever tongues is, whatever you understand it to be, and whatever your opinion about it is, it seems to be a phenomena that God drops on baby believers, new believers who are hearing the gospel for the first time. And then as those believers begin to grow, this particular spiritual gift begins to diminish. I believe it still happens today, and I think what happened in 1990 is proof that it does. And there are other accounts of people hearing the gospel for the first time in, in their area of the world and this phenomena recurring. But it would seem, according to the Bible pattern, that as believers mature, this visible and public practice diminishes. Not going to be hard line about that but it's what appears to be the case. And we can think about our own lives, our own experiences. Uh, when a baby is born, what's the first thing it does? It begins to scream and cry, begins to wail. Now, when the baby does this, does the father say, oh, write that down, spell that out. What is the baby saying? Of course not. Nobody knows what the baby's saying. It's just an inarticulate sound coming out of him because for the first time its lungs are filled with, with air and its vocal cords are beginning to exercise themselves and it's, uh, this baby is crying because now it's alive. It's a new birth. But over time, we would hope that the baby's crying diminishes and is replaced by articulate speech. And I think the same holds true for this gift. And as a believer matures, this gift, though it's still there, it's something that's replaced more and more by something that is articulate. You know, all of us, in one way or another, speak in an unknown tongue. When we cry, it's inarticulate. When we laugh, someone goes, ha, 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 har, har, har or however it is you laugh. How do you spell that? How do you write that down? Does anybody say, go look that up? What does that mean? No, it's an expression that comes out of our depths of our, our soul and expresses itself as laughter. In fact, the word hallelujah comes from the word hallel, which generally means to praise. And the word hallel is it comes from the act of eulalating, eulalating. Eulalating is something you hear in the Middle East, and I heard it in Kenya the first time I went. And I heard it again in Uganda a few years later when we went up into a banana plantation to do some teaching. 
And when the vehicle drove up, it was a nice warm day. Of course, all the windows are open. All the women began to go like this. I, I can't do it, but they can do it so quick and at such a high, uh, high pitch. It's this la 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 sound they do with their tongues. It's called ululating. It's just a phenomenon, just something that's done when they get excited. It can be something that means we're happy. It could also mean something that uh, there's an alarm. Everybody pay attention and get over here. It's from that we get the Hebrew word hallel, to praise, and then the word hallelujah, which means praise God. Even that word comes from something that's inarticulate, something that arises out of the depths of a person's soul and expresses itself through the mouth. So, just wanted to give that, that brief introduction. And I know you're thinking, well, when are you going to get into the chapter? We will. But hopefully this introduction will allow us to go through the chapter fairly quickly. As we get to this chapter, let me share with you the two approaches that commentators have taken and, and theologians have taken. Uh, and I must say, theologians have been banging their head against this chapter for centuries. And about the only thing they've gotten out of it is a headache. And uh, so... This is one of those chapters that can be very confusing. I'm just encouraging you just to take what you can from it. But here's my bottom line advice when it comes to the gift of tongues. Don't worry about it. Don't fret about it. Just keep growing, keep moving on. You can think of it this way. Paul gives a list of the spiritual gifts back in chapter 12. And here in the first verse of chapter 14, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Tongues is at the very bottom rung. Prophecy is at the top. And you can think of it this way. Think of the gifts as a ladder, the tongues being the bottom rung, prophecy being the top rung. And to reach that top rung, you must draw closer to God so that your mind, your emotions, and everything about you surrendered more and more to him to where his mind becomes at home in yours and the things you speak forth are the words he would have you to say. But to climb a ladder, you start at the bottom and work your way up. And that first rung, tongues, you can picture it as being a ladder you got about to climb, and that bottom rung is painted with stripes. It's painted with stripes or some flowers or some foo-foo designs, and you look at it and think, well, what's that all about? None of the other rungs have this. Well, what's going on with this rung? And you can get so distracted by that bottom rung, you never climb the ladder. And I know people like this. I know entire church communities like this, where tongues has become their preoccupation and they have never matured. And um, I strongly recommend and advise you that you avoid such communities because they are spiritually immature and spiritually unhealthy, and the fruit is consistently bad. That's been my experience, and uh, I've had a lot of experience with people from these kinds of churches who have come and begin to share the broken hearts the damaged relationships and um, the, the sinful underbelly of these communities. 
And it's not that the gift of tongues is evil, it's that the people have refused to grow up. So don't get distracted by that bottom rung. So there are two approaches to this chapter. One is the historical, which means that the languages under discussion were human languages, possibly Hebrew in particular. But the other uh, approach I call the charismatic approach, and their contention is that the languages under discussion were spiritual languages given supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. I think there's merit to both of these. I think both of these can be in view. But I, and whether, if I'm right or wrong on that, the principles here could apply to both. Because you know what? In a Messianic community, we use a lot of Hebrew. We sing Hebrew songs, we, we sing Hebrew scriptures, and we sing Hebrew prayers. And, um, but one of the things we do here at Beth the Coon is whenever Hebrew is involved, there's always an English translation. And it's wonderful to sing the Hebrew. Uh, think for a moment when we're together and we sing the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod Malkuto Le'olom Vayed. And uh, if you look, which you shouldn't, you'll see people with their eyes closed and they're singing and they're singing out of the depths of their souls. But probably 10% or less of the people who are singing those words and are being blessed by them could tell you what each word means and break it down and explain and translate each word of what they're singing. So they're singing words that they don't understand their minds, and yet their spirits are enriched. Their souls are elevated by singing them. But what is wonderful is when you can sing the words, but then also understand the words. So uh, even the principles of 1 Corinthians 14 can apply to even using Hebrew in a service. All right, are we ready to get started? I hope so, because my time is about two-thirds gone already. Um, Let me give you one more analogy. Studying chapter 14 for most of us is kind of like uh, having a manual, an operator's manual for a very complicated machine, a complicated machine that we don't own. And studying the manual, you can get a lot out of it and get understanding, but if you had the machine right there, the manual would mean a lot more. And as Paul addresses this group in Corinth, he's addressing home fellowships made up of Gentiles who just recently were pagan idol worshipers, And this is a group of people who've been filled with God's Spirit who want to follow Yeshua, but they don't have Bibles. Uh, The Gospels had not even been written yet, to our knowledge. They may have had some access to hearing the Torah read in synagogues. Some of them may have memorized some of the Psalms. And, uh, but they had Peter and Paul and others visiting and writing to them, so they had these writings. But um, they had to rely quite a bit, and God definitely used the Holy Spirit to help speak to these people and to encourage them. And I think especially in, lack, in their lack of having the Scriptures with them. But it, it's hard for us to imagine the setting that this took place in. 
So uh, again, we're reading a manual for a machine that we don't have right here in our hands, if that makes any sense. So let's get started. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And this is the last big pause I'll take before we go on. Prophesy. We tend to think when someone prophesies, they're foretelling the future. Sometimes when a person prophesies, when a prophet prophesies, he does foretell something about the future. But if you look at the prophets, if you read through the, uh, the biblical prophets, and you really take account how much of what they wrote was about the future and how much was about right now, you'll find that the the, the vast amount of what they spoke and wrote was about the here and now, encouraging people to make the changes of their lives that they need to make. But there can be some prediction involved as well. Prophesy is spelled with an S, by the way, and I don't want to insult your, your intelligence, but when it's spelled with a C, that's the word prophecy. Prophesy is a verb. That's the act of, of speaking forth God's mind. Prophecy is what is prophesied. That's what we write down. In Greek, the word is prophetuo, prophetuo, and you can hear the, the similarity of the word prophecy. Down at the bottom is the Latin word, propheto, which is also very similar to the Greek word. But in, in Hebrew, the word is nava, nava, and a prophet's called a navi. And many people in the Shabbat, they sing Eliyahu ha-navi, Elijah the prophet. And nava means to basically gush forth, just to, when a fountain sends forth its waters, that would be nava. The last two letters spell the word bow, which means to come or to go. There's a Torah portion in Exodus called bow, when God commands Moses to go or come to Pharaoh. So navo or nava means to prophesy. And it simply means this. God takes what's on his mind, he puts it on your mind, and you share it. I think whenever you have an inspired insight into the word, that bit is prophecy. Uh, we're hesitant to use the word because the word prophesy has a, a lot of weight to it. But um, I think prophecy takes place a whole lot more in in healthy Bible studies and in discussion, discussion groups, let me give it credit. But there's also an interesting phenomena with this word. Let me go to my pen. If we take the word nava and spell it backward, it spells the word evan, which most of you will recognize as the word for rock. And who is our rock? Our rock is Yeshua. And possibly this is what was in mind in Revelation 19.10, where it says, For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. And so whenever we truly share an insight that is from God, whenever we speak forth God's mind, whether it's just a snippet, just a sentence, uh, or a short conversation, we're testifying who Yeshua is. We're allowing Yeshua to speak. You're allowing Yeshua's presence to be revealed in the world. So uh, I I don't think this is any accident that the word nava and the word evan, stone, are mirror images of each other. 
So, again, let's continue. And as you can see, the next part is discussion questions. So I'm going to go on without any big breaks. Here we go. I'll start again in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a language speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And again, is he speaking Hebrew, a language he doesn't understand because he's, he's memorized Hebrew prayers? Or is this a supernatural language with which God has imbued him as he did with the Mongolians, as he did with the Corinthians and the Samaritans? On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, and look at these three things, their, their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This is the product of real prophecy, not predicting the future, but in building up your brother, in encouraging your brother, your sister, and bringing consolation and comfort to them. That's the heart and soul of a prophetic word. The one who speaks in a language, a tongue, builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up a community, an assembly. Your translation may say the church, but there's no the there in Greek. So it's an assembly, your, your home group, your home fellowship, your Bible study. Now, I want you all to speak in languages, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in languages, unless someone interprets so that the assembly may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some now, get these four things, revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. These four things, you can arrange them this way. You can put revelation on one side, knowledge on the other. Then under revelation, put prophecy, and under knowledge, put teaching. Because revelation is something where God kind of speaks to your heart, puts something in your mind, opens an insight, and then when you speak it, that's prophecy. When he gives you knowledge because of your studies or because you have a, an insight into an, uh, some, some uh, occurrence or in someone's life, and then you share that, what you've learned from the scriptures or what you've observed, that becomes a teaching. Now, what's wonderful is when someone with a revelation and has also done their homework and has knowledge, and they can bring forth a teaching that also contains God's voice in it, God's prophecy. That's wonderful. Then you have the spiritual and the physical working together in perfect harmony like two sides of a menorah, and light is the product. Verse 7, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes... How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different utterances. Now, you may have languages there, but the word there is different. The word there in Greek is phone, which means sound or an utterance. So I'm not going to use the word language because it's not the same word as uh, the word tongue and language used elsewhere in the chapter. 
So there are doubtless many different utterances, different sounds in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the sound or the utterance, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual things, not manifestations of the spirit, that's not there in the Greek, but spiritual things. You want spiritual things. Strive to excel in building up the assembly. If you want spiritual things just for yourself, that's the occult. If you want spiritual things so you can be in a more effective instrument for God and his kingdom and you can build up your brothers and sisters, then that is something that God is happy about, something he approves of. 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a language should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I remember when I first started learning Hebrew and I started uh, incorporating the, the Hebrew prayers and the Siddur in my life, I found myself very quickly memorizing the Hebrew prayers. There's just a cadence to them and a sound, and pretty soon I could just rattle them off. But if you were to stop me and say, okay, what does that prayer mean? I'd have to really stop and take it word by word and translate it word by word into what it meant. And I thought, here I'm praying in Hebrew, and it's wonderful. I feel close to God, but I'm just praying words that I don't really understand fluently. And this is why the rabbis teach us that when you pray to God, when you come before him to pour out your heart, pray whatever your native language is. It's okay to use Hebrew. It's all right. But don't do it to the exclusion of praying in your own native language. So, for if I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Verse 15, what am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. I'll sing the Shema. I'll sing Matovu. But I'll also give thanks to the spirit. I'll sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. When you're with other people, you must make yourself subservient to them. Set aside some of your freedoms for the sake of your brother and the sake of your sister. 18. I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. Now, you know, charismatics use that verse to say, see, see, Paul, he spoke in tongues all the time. Maybe he did. Maybe that's exactly what this verse means. But Paul was one to often use hyperbole and irony and, um, and to use a sense of humor. And he might be saying, hey, I speak in all kinds of languages. I speak Hebrew. I speak Aramaic. I speak Greek. I'm sure he spoke Latin. And who knows, there may have been some other dialects he's familiar with. He might have said, I, I speak in all kinds of languages. And just the feel I get, and I could be wrong, the feel I get, I think that's what he's saying. He says, nevertheless, in an assembly, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in some language. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be men. 
In the Torah it is written, quote, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says Adonai. Now that's a direct quote from Isaiah 28.11. Isaiah 28.11. Based on that passage, Paul says the following, verse 22. Thus, tongues or languages are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And in the next verse, he says the exact opposite thing. In verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole assembly comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? In verse 22, he said, tongues are for, for, not for believers, but unbelievers. Verse 23, he says, if unbelievers come in, you're all speaking in tongues, they'll think you're nuts. How are we to reconcile these two verses? Again, very confusing. You know, for the longest time, I thought maybe somehow <clears throat> somebody wrote down or, or, or made a typo when they were copying the original manuscript that Paul wrote. But I think Paul's doing this. It's all based on that quote from Isaiah. Let's read that again in verse 21. In the Torah it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, to the Jewish people. And even then they will not listen to me, says Adonai. When you go back and read the context of Isaiah 28, we find that the, the Jewish people had fallen into sin. They'd fallen far away from God. These believers had become unbelievers. So God sent against them a foreign army that spoke a foreign language to get their attention. So in verse 22, Paul says, Thus languages are a sign, are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers because the Jews have become unbelievers. They don't believe in God anymore. So God sent against them a foreign tongue wielded by an invading enemy. But in verse 23, he seems to be snapping back and saying, but that's not the case with you. You are believers. You are believers. And so it's reverse for you. I don't know. You study it out. This is something you can talk about in your, your home group. So anyways, in verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole assembly comes together and all speak in tongues, all speak in languages, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? I remember so clearly back in the um, very late 1970s, when the Jesus movement was at its peak and I was in college and I got involved in the Jesus movement and I had some very dear friends whose lives have been transformed by this revival that was sweeping through uh, the United States, especially among late teens, early 20s, uh, people in those, those age brackets. And um, I went with a friend of mine to... I'm not going to name the denomination, but it's one you would all recognize. And there's, I'm sure there's one of these in your neighborhood. And so I was interested to go to this place where I knew they'd be speaking in tongues just to see how they did it. 
And when I got there, you know, everything was great. They had music and everybody was, seemed pretty normal and looked pretty normal. And, and then at one point, the pastor says, oh, everybody, just, just raise your hands. Everybody just praise God as the Spirit moves you. And then all of a sudden, people all start speaking in tongues. And I thought, this is weird. This isn't right. And I knew this verse, even at that time, so early in my walk with God, that when you speak in tongues, you don't all do it at the same time. Yet here they were doing it. And right then, I learned an important lesson that just because the majority of the people are doing things one way doesn't make it right. And Paul will return to this in just a moment. But verse 24 says, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. Actually, that's not a good translation. It'll be exposed to the light. It'll be brought to the light. Then he is convicted. That is the, the phrase that should be translated convicted. Uh, the word there is anacrino. He'll be judged. He'll be examined. He'll know that God is looking into his life, and he realizes he's not been living life the right way. Verse 25, the third thing, the secrets of his heart are disclosed And so, number four, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So, his sin is exposed. Not that people are pointing out his sin, but he senses his sin. He feels his sin. He realizes this is unpleasing to God. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. It's like the Samaritan woman. When she ran back into town after meeting Yeshua, she says, come Here a man who's told me everything I've done. No wonder they went running to see this guy. This is the true effect when there's real genuine prophecy in a group of people. And these things that occur, I encourage you to go back and look at John 16, verse 8. John 16, 8. As these are the things that Yeshua said would happen as a result of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Moving on to verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a psalm. The Greek word there is psalmos, psalm. Has a lesson. In Greek, that's a didache. If you recall, there is a writing by the apostles called the didache, and we have looked at that somewhat and done studies in that. I think there's even a downloadable version of that on our website. Uh, but a teaching, DDK simply means a teaching, a lesson, or a revelation. The, the, the word there in Greek is apocalypsis, or what we get the word apocalypse from. Yeah, if someone has a psalm, someone has a teaching, someone has an apocalypse. That sounds kind of weird. But apocalypse, apocalypso, simply means to reveal. When you read the book of Revelation, it's called the apocalypsis of Yeshua which means the revelation of Yeshua. And we should be in the revelation business where we are constantly revealing Yeshua in the world as we live his life, do his deeds, and speak his words. So someone has a psalm, someone has a lesson, a teaching, someone has an insight, something they've, they've seen of Yeshua. Someone has a tongue, a glossa. Or an interpretation. The word for interpretation is harmonia. That's where we get our word hermeneutics. 
which is our way of breaking down and making something understandable. Now, as I read through this, I started thinking, this makes so much more sense to me now, because my experience of church had always been a big group of people coming into a building once a week, and a guy stands up front and gives a sermon, and we all sit in our, our pews and listen to what's said and respond accordingly. But that is not the case. That's not the setting for this. It's a home fellowship. And as I've been visiting our Sabbath home fellowships at Beth Coon, it's wonderful. Because in each one of them, someone comes and they have an insight into the word that they share. Uh, at one of them, uh, a young man had a guitar. He led us in some songs. He had a, he had a psalm to share. Others have a, uh, a bit of a teaching, something that they've learned and they're sharing from the word. And everything's done decently and in order. Uh, I haven't heard of any tongues and interpretations yet, but I do know that as we go through the guides to prayer that Tim prepares each week, that we look into the Siddur, we look at the Hebrew prayers, and those who know some Hebrew can bring insights out of the language of Hebrew. So to a degree, there is something from a, a foreign language, the language of transcendence, and people are bringing out a hermeneutic out of that. These things are happening in our home groups each week. And he says, let all things be done for building up. That should be our theme for every time we gather together, whether it's on Shabbat, some other time of the week, when we come together as a congregation, as an assembly, let everything be done for the sake of the brother, for building them up, not tearing them down. Verse 27, if any speak in a language, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. That's the verse I wanted to write on a big banner and hold it up at that service I went to back in the late 70s. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the assembly and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So when someone has an insight, they have something they, they think God wants to say to encourage the group, and they may not even preface it with, I have a word from the Lord. I always get a little bit nervous when people say that just haphazardly. But when someone shares something, an insight from the word or some principle, it should be weighed by the more mature and then be built on or be adjusted and, and brought into to alignment with truth. But let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made, an apocalypsis is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Whenever someone says, well, I just couldn't help myself, I just had to open my mouth and speak. Well, then that wasn't God's spirit. Because a fruit of God's spirit is self-control. And if you can't control yourself, that's not God's spirit at work. It's another spirit. For God is not a God of confusion, but of shalom, of peace. As in all the assemblies of the saints. Verse 34. The wives, I want you to correct your translation there from women to wives. Now, in Greek, it is the same word. Gunekis is the word for woman or for wife. 
But I think the context here makes it clear that wives are being spoken of. It says, the wives should keep silent in the assemblies. Now, let me say this. First of all, it wasn't a case where Paul did not let allow a woman to ever speak in assembly. We know good and well that he did. In fact, if you go back to chapter 11 and verse 5, he says this. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered goes on and on and on. We talked about this chapter. But look who is prophesying. Look who's praying aloud. It's the wife. And also, over in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, uh, it says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So, how can women prophesy in the assembly if they're not allowed to ever speak? So we know for a fact that women did speak in the assemblies. So what is Paul talking about here? I really believe it goes back up to verse 29 where it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. In other words, you would have some of the men, these would be the elders, who would weigh what is said. And they would then be the ones to bring some adjustments, some corrections, some tweaking to whatever is prophesied. And I think one of the things that is never, ever attractive and it's demeaning, and it's disruptive, is when a man who is a leader, who is speaking to a group, who's bringing some correction, who's speaking something that's good for the group, and his wife is there, oh, honey, don't say that, don't say that, you need to saw it. When she's there coaching him, I think that demeans him. I think that diminishes the group. I think it interferes with what God is doing. And so, somehow as I read this, that is what I see happening in my mind. I don't think Paul is just squelching women. With that said, you'll notice that a Beth Tacoon in our services is a very masculine service. We generally have only men up front. And if there is a woman up front, her husband or one of the elders is with her. And there's one main, two main reasons for that. One is we want to protect the women. When a woman is in a position of leadership, she has, like any person in leadership, she has a, a target on her back. And uh, the enemy takes shots at whoever is up front. We want to protect our women. Secondly, we want our children to grow up to see men being men. And not that women can't do better than men. They most certainly can do better than men. But little boys, to be inspired, need to see men doing godly things. Somehow little girls can be inspired by either a woman or a man doing what they're supposed to do. Little boys aren't quite as open-minded. Little boys are a little bit more immature. But when they see men doing manly things, doing spiritual things, doing godly things up front, that inspires them to be godly men more. So those are two of our 
pieces of philosophy for how we do things at Beth So, the wives should guard the silence. And that's really what it means, to guard the silence in the assemblies. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. And that's the key there. They need to be in submission to their own husbands. So if there's a couple there, and the woman is speaking, and the man is quiet, something's out of order. When the woman speaks instead of the husband, something's out of order. But when the husband speaks, the woman's quiet, that seems fine. But then it's okay for the wife to speak too, but not to overshadow the husband. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, and they were in a meeting. And it was a very domineering wife in one of the, the couple's and he said, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around it because I saw him lean over and ask her for permission to share something with the group. That's not right. But should be in submission, as the Torah also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a wife to speak in the assembly. Okay? I'm just going to let that, you guys sort that out, those verses there through verse 35. Is that a cop-out? Absolutely. <laughs> Verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Unlike other places in Corinthians where he says, this is the Lord, this is just me sharing my opinion. That's not the case here. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in languages, but all things should be done decently and in order. So with that, here are some discussion questions for you and your group. Paul states that God is not the author of confusion. But didn't God confuse the languages of Babel? So, How do you handle that one? There should be some interesting discussion over that question. Second question, what should be our attitude toward the topic of tongues? I told you early on what I think it should be, so you might want to go back and see if you remember that. Define prophecy. Do you desire this gift? You need to answer this question for yourself. You're told to desire this gift. You're supposed to desire this gift. Do you desire it? If so, what steps can you take toward acquiring it? By what other terms might we call prophecy today? Nava. What, 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 uh, how does it manifest today? What other terms might we use for it? And then discuss the power of the wife and the holy gathering. You know, in this, this uh, short passage we just read, it sounds like, Paul is kind of denigrating wives. But if anything, Paul knew, as well as anyone, the power of the woman, the power of the wife. I want you to talk about that. And in a fellowship, what is the power a wife has there to build up the assembly and build up the community? Followed by that, I have the scriptures that I refer to and quote, so you can look those up on the website and download those. And with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you, Father, for this chapter. It seems very awkward to our 21st century ears. And it's a chapter that in many ways can be quite confusing. 
And we know that this gift of tongues, this gift of languages, is something that comes from you. And yet, Lord, we have seen so many counterfeit examples of it, examples of something that's not from you. There are other times we've seen this gift just misused. So, Father, help us to know the difference between the true and the counterfeit. And, Father, in these last days, if you choose to to, um, bring this gift back and use it, may we use it according to the dictates and the order that you prescribe here through your servant, Paul. So, Father, make us the people you want us to be. But, Lord, most of all, of all these gifts that Paul has been discussing in these last three chapters, Lord, make us prophets. Give us the spirit of prophets so the things that proceed from our mouth would come from your heart, not just from ours. They be things that come for the building up of the body of Messiah and not to tear it down. They be things that help build your kingdom here on earth. That they be words that you would speak. And they are words that are moderated and inspired by your spirit. So that, Father, your word that was in Yeshua incarnate might also speak and inspire and and use us and animate us. So, Lord, make us the people you want us to be so that we can be the assembly, the congregation you want us to be. And I pray that these words will find uh, hearing ears And you'll protect the hearer from anything I've said that is erroneous, that is not correct, or is out of balance. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.